0: This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by The Shortest Story. You can read weird little postcard short stories at shorteststory.com. Artists have a lot of quirks. Um, You know, we we have to sleep uh, with a handful of soil from our home country. Uh, Otherwise, you know, we implode during the night.
1: Attention citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science where we talk about how genre gets made. Our special guest today is Peter Tchaikovsky, uh, a name that I am proud to have pronounced correctly as a Kamichuk. My long-suffering <laughs> studio mate Justin Curry is here with us. Hello. And we are going to talk about story. A lot of people that we've had on the podcast write a lot of pages to make their stories. But you, Peter, have started something very special. Do you want to tell us about it?
0: Yeah. um, So since uh, June, I've been releasing these, uh, I call them postcard stories. Um, Each one is kind of, uh, it's a very, very short story. Like it qualifies as microfiction, flash fiction. Uh, I think the longest one I've done is maybe 200, 250 words, but it's arranged over a photograph Um, that kind of sets the tone or mental space for the story. Um, And these little, I I think of them as like postcards that you send to yourself from alternate lives. Uh, So like universes strange universes parallel to our own that that you might've lived in, or um, lives where you made decisions other than the ones that you made. Um, And you get these little glimpses of kind of these weird parallel worlds. Uh, And it's mostly I do it because I don't have the attention span to write something longer. Uh, so it it looks like something that's like you know meaningful and artistic um, and intentional and it's really just a workaround for my terrible attention span and work (laughs) ethic
1: I think all of our working practices are similar to that what I like about them is they feel like single panel comics like the whole story in one panel
2: it's a tapa it's not a meal
0: oh I like that I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that awesome (laughs) it's all yours I don't know. I
1: feel like I'm going to make a rights claim against this. <laughs> I just, uh, that's a little inside joke. Okay, so how do you write a
0: super short story and have it work? Um, it, I mean, they work different ways. Like, one of the things that the shortest story has been, a question that's been making me ask, and it's a question that I, I would like to throw to you guys, is, like, what constitutes a story? What what counts as a story? What's the minimum mm. criteria for something being a story?
1: Oh, well, um, then. The pithy answer I always give is that someone wants something, complications ensue.
0: That's a uh, that's Douglas Glover, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a really big fan of of that that maxim. Um, and I, I used to to subscribe really hard to that idea because um, I you know I I before I did comics I was in a creative writing uh, undergrad, um, looking at fiction and poetry, and I and I was I definitely subscribed to that, and I still do, especially for anything longer. But for these weird little nugget stories. There's usually some kind of conflict. There's usually some kind of trouble that gets introduced, um, but not all of them work that way. Some of them kind of like uh, throw like a smoke bomb in the air, and there's a distraction rather than like an actual conflict. Um, and I don't know if so I don't I don't know if they count. Um, you know, I I count them, but uh, I have a vested interest in that. Um, so yeah, I, I it, that that's a, it's a tough one. Um, it's a question that I'm I'm still wrestling with. Is is like what what's the minimum? Uh, nutritional value for a story
1: see now Justin maybe doesn't know this but I also see a lot of the body of his work in a similar vein as I see your shortest stories because he does a lot of single images like his print portfolio is basically stories in one image as
2: well all his big versus small tell us
1: about your big versus small Justin
2: uh I think, yeah, it's my favorite type of composition is is some kind of large monster versus like a a small knight or warrior or something along those lines, and I think I gravitate towards that kind of composition because of the narrative that's inherent with that, like the you can sum
1: up a whole story in a single image, and I have jealousy issues related to the fact that sometimes the feeling that people who like my work get. And come back to the table with having read two hundred and twenty pages of something I've done, is the equivalent joy to someone looking at one of Justin's pieces and just suddenly breaking out in pure elation. You have
2: that all over the place too, though. It's not
1: it's- quite the same, no. But it's just the single—the power of the single image. I yeah. often, or the single, like really the single story. The when you can encapsulate an idea so that people get it immediately and then internalize it. Yeah. Gosh, that is like the high water mark of. Storytelling I one think.
2: of the the bench when I think of stuff like that, like really concise, tight, impactful storytelling, the beginning of up in yeah. like five minutes they they suck you into a story and they they make you cry, they break your heart, and then the movie begins, and that's all like in seconds, you know you know you don't talk very much, I like you Peter, your postcard stories are both
1: sad and Kind of creepy sometimes and happy sometimes. Do you have like a particular mood that you have to get into, nail it?
0: The um the mood that I need to get into is just like turning off the editor brain. Uh, so to me it's it's I'm not like trying to be happy or sad or force the story to go in a particular direction. I'm just trying to turn off the part of the brain that like tells you that a story's not going to work or that a premise is too far fetched, um or that you'll never stick the landing. Like that's been the key for me, um. Because I, I, for whatever reason, when I'm writing slightly longer short fiction, I I, I do let like I I, I, tur- I keep that part of the brain on, but at like twenty five percent, because I don't want to spend you know five hours writing a story that's that I just won't be able to to pull stick the landing. Um, so I, I keep that activated for shorter story because there are no stakes because I can get in and out of a story concept relatively quickly. Um, there are there's like no bad stories. That's kind of the rule that I set for myself when I'm writing them. Um, And then later on, I come back and there's plenty of bad stories uh, and and the editor brain switches on and figures out, okay, which which of these do I want to put in the redraft folder? Which of these am I willing to totally scrap? And which of these do I think are strong enough that I can I can do another revision or two and get them ready for someone else to read them?
1: Have any really stuck with you and wanted to be more than a single page story?
0: Yeah, uh, that definitely happens as I'm writing them. But the thing that I've found is that... um, that to to make them as like efficient as as they are uh ki- kind of requires you to cut all outside ties um within the narrative like if you if you if you gesture too much towards something that's not going to be in contained within the nugget of the final version of the story if you hint at this larger story I, I find that it often makes them less satisfying so the story tends to craft itself into a shape where it's self-contained and i don't actually have that much more to say um which is something that i found surprising um I have had like a, a couple times I've had a story go um, you know somewhat big on reddit or um, on Imgur, and I've had people ask me if they can make short films or or uh, you know try try writing longer versions of the story, which is something that i'm I'm very comfortable with and I'm always really curious to see what they draw out of it. but for me for me it, it would be such an uphill battle to like I've worked so hard to cut it down um, to like make it, it it's it's like one of those um, fake cans of peanuts that when you open it like a snake springs out (laughs) Um, i worked so hard to get that friggin' snake in the can i have no interest in or like rolling up a sleeping bag and getting it to fit in its original bag i have no interest in taking it out again and then trying to figure out how to fit it all over that just that just sounds like a horrible experience but if
1: someone else wants to go camping you'll lend them that sleeping bag
0: oh for sure yeah that's yeah have fun with that that sounds sounds like something that you'd enjoy
1: (laughs) now that's interesting has that have you seen any um like new iterations of those stories come back to you yet
0: I've had two uh, short filmmakers talk to me about the same story, uh, and then both of them just dropped off and stopped responding. <laughs> that's usually the way of it. Everybody gets ex-
2: like excited at the get-go, but very few people will actually follow
1: through. Sustainers are, yeah. Which is, but uh, when you find them, you give them all your all the energy you can. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. But that's like a standard response when people ask about you know. I think of like tattoos. Everybody wants to make your artwork into a tattoo. Am I, hundreds I used to actually correspond yet. with these people, but now it's more like, yeah, sure, go for it and send me a picture when it's done. Yeah. And out of the, like, yeah, the 20 people who, who say that, one maybe actually doesn't.
1: Yeah. To our listeners who don't know you, Peter has a very different way of reaching people than Justin and I. Justin and I, you know, we make books, we take it to shows, we do a lot of, uh, you know, physical representing of ourselves in places to get our stuff out there but peter has cracked the code of getting his work seen by lots of people in lots of different ways for lots of different reasons you want to share some of those with us
0: yeah so um i think the most interesting but also like the worst thing about my career is how uh scattershot it is um <laughs> if if we're willing to for a second uh, just let's call the shortest story a webcomic because it's an easy way to refer to it and there isn't really another term for for what it is um i i, I write four webcomics a week um uh shortest story is one of them it updates tuesdays and thursdays although i'll probably have to scale back to once a week sometime in the next month or two um com is kind of the webcomic that i'm i'm best known for and then isitcanon.com and what's George today are, are two webcomics that I do with a friend of mine, uh, Aaron Link, who's a very talented illustrator um, who also has his finger in a lot of creative pies. Um, so every week I'm, I'm putting out five new um, comic post creative pieces on the Internet for people to read for free, and I'm pushing them out through um, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr. Um, and occasionally I'll post a little album of them to Imgur or to Reddit to see if there's a response to it. So... Um, I've kind of uh, like the only way I've ever been able to finish a book is by tricking myself into making it one very small piece at a time. Um, web comics are like the perfect format for someone with my attention span and my my bad work ethic to be able to like go into an idea and get out of it with something rewarding. You know. Hold, a few hold hours. on, I have to interrupt. Bad work ethic. How
2: many pages do you finish a week? He has to trick himself into it though. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it,
0: I, I need the reward structures that like. Um, uh like give me something some kind of gratification very quickly like the fact that you can make a 200 page book without being able to have someone pat you on the back for doing a good job or show someone just to like stop get out of your own head and stop being crazy about it like the fact that you have that stamina is just boggling to me
1: well let's not be fooled that any artist or writer can go all the way through those hundreds of pages without needing someone along the way to prop them up occasionally Right. There are places I go and people I go to where even if I'm not showing them the work, they know that what I'm really there for is to be told that it's OK to carry on without <laughs> anyone having seen it. So that's that's, an, you know, um, I, I
0: definitely when I when I show early work to people, um, you know, in, including my wife, I will tell them, like, I am open to constructive criticism or I am only open to you complimenting me. Like I will show people work. And say that ahead of time. If I just know that like, I'm in the precious honeymoon phase with something and I'm just not <laughs> ready to look at it objectively. So I try, I try to be honest about that. Yeah, that can be really I, helpful.
1: We ran a, or I ran a writer's group out of my home for a number of years and we, it was like poets and filmmakers and authors, people in all different genres and things. But the one rule was that uh, being nice doesn't help anyone get better. But arriving only for praise won't help you to get better either. And so you yeah. would have to come, you would give out your drafts with a list of points that you wanted specific criticism of, and then people were not free to talk about anything else.
0: That seems like a yeah, like a good a good middle ground.
1: Right? So that you would come saying like, oh, I I don't know if the dialogue's any good between these two characters. People would read the story and then that's all you'd talk about. So it'd be really focused rather than people everyone giving their opinion on the story or poem or screenplay as a complete piece, you would just we would mine down um, and what I found really cool about the cross pollination is that the poets would help you pick the right word, and the screenwriters would help you with your dialogue, right? And the uh, and the novelists would help you with your plots, and you like everyone had their own little thing that helped make everybody's stuff stronger. I thought.
0: Well, right. that's a great system.
1: It worked for, and I'm uh, I'm uh, proud to say that I think five or maybe even seven of the members of that group are all Manitoba Book Award winners. Nice now hey wow yeah so uh, either we have nepotized our way to the top or uh we worked really hard all together it was mostly a support group though i think what really worked was that you had a deadline and i'm hearing that in what you're saying you had this internalized deadline where you knew feedback was coming right rapidly and so you had an impetus to
2: finish well having having eyes on it really helps move a project along you and this. help it evolve well and like with what you're doing, Peter, like that on, you have so many online eyes ready to, to consume things. Um, are you like, is that, uh, do you, do you get that rush? Like when you post something online and it it goes viral, like, is that a big part of, of what you're doing?
0: It, um, it definitely is. And there is a rush. Um, it's also a very big creative distraction. Um, you know, keeping, uh, keeping my my attention too tightly focused on social media to see how a comic is doing and, and judge it by its you know viral potential was something that I got over invested in uh, a number of times in my career and I had to learn how to like step back from um, because you know what works in, in like the the low attention span Facebook click economy is not necessarily something that that is gonna be you know a, a, and, I, and I, I make stupid cartoons I'm gonna say an expression here that's gonna sound far too um, it, there's too much gravitas on what I'm about to say. When when you actually think about the fact that I just make stupid cartoons, but th- it's not going to be an enduring work um, if you're just kind of chasing trends or you're trying to to create these short like uh, like bait pieces. Um, and I'm I'm conscious of that. Like I don't want to to lean too heavily into social media. And then also just spending too much time on social media is the worst thing in the world. Um, I, I hate it.
1: I think about it sometimes. Like um, if you've ever been to the horse races or watched. Um you know a Hollywood dramatization of people betting on horses. Some people do that with their posts. I think in a very unhealthy way. Yeah. You know they're standing there in the sidelines once it's released, just hoping and screaming and yelling, yeah. and and when really they could have probably gone on and made something else during that time.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, the The key is the key is to gamble more while you're already gambling, rather than waiting to see how your bets pay off. So remember, kids, uh, gamble uh, continuously um, and without <laughs> looking to see how your previous decisions have impacted your life.
2: Dabo! <laughs> that is Dabo, <double>, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I don't know why you insist on playing this ridiculous game. I
0: like games.
2: You, Justin, you have a lot of online eyeballs. Sometimes. Not all the time. Not sometimes time. that horse wins and sometimes it doesn't.
0: Yeah. but and,
2: it's... and I have noticed some, like I... While I'm making something my mind starts to think a little too much about ooh this is going to go viral online this is going to get so many eyes on it i'm so excited about that and then it doesn't and i'm let down and i sh- like i sh- i shouldn't be that invested on how it performs online because it is like a little bit like a lottery like some of them go viral for i have no idea why and some don't and i i shouldn't care as much as as i do because then the the real end product the real thing that happens is I take that artwork and I I go to a comic con with it and I show people in person and the reactions to it online versus the real life reactions are completely different yeah they have yeah. no sway over each other
0: what have you found the distinction to be
2: uh, I have no idea I still I still have not cracked the code I've had pieces that have gone like you know two hundred fifty thousand views in the first twenty four hours and were spread to all corners of the internet and I brought that piece to shows and maybe sold five copies over, like, months. Nobody gives a crap about it as as an actual piece of art in the real world, but the internet loved it. And vice versa, I've had stuff that got absolutely no traction online, and I cannot hold on to it at a show floor. It just flies off the shelf.
0: Interesting. I'd, I'd be so curious to, um, to get a better understanding of why. It's something that I, I, I've been puzzling over, too. And I I've, I've figured out, at least for comics, I have like a theory as to why, um, which is that it's easy. So, you know, a, a like or a share um, are they, they require different levels of investment from the person doing it, um, but they're very low stakes. So if you have a very widely accessible joke, um, like I, I had a comic that I, I wrote about what the way that you open a bag of chips says about your personality. Uh, very low, very yes. low stakes material, but funny. Like, like you know, I, I think people who open the the bag from the bottom are are actual psychopaths. Um, and I was very honest about that. I agree. Um, and uh, so I I did this comic, and it's it's a, a very popular one. Every time I share it online, um, it goes viral. I never bothered making a poster, and this was the moment where I realized kind of what the difference between a popular comic and a popular poster, or popular sale item at cons would be. Is that no one, everyone cares enough about that joke to like it or share it. But nobody cares enough about that joke to pay $15 for it. No one cares enough about how you open chips to, to put it up on their wall and say, this is something that's, that communicates my identity to you or communicates my values to you. Because no one really cares about chips that much. I mean, maybe maybe a few people, but um, most people have a bit more than that going on in their lives.
1: Well, I wonder if you've touched on something there, because there's um, you know, there's a truism in psychology, uh, criminal psychology anyway, where If you go into somebody's house and you take all the books off their shelf, if they have books, that is, and you look for the parts that they've dog eared or underlined, those are usually things that reinforce their worldview. They're things they've selectively chosen that encourage their own actions. And so if what you're saying is true, then perhaps, you know, nobody really is saying, hey, this thing about chips is going to affect my day-to-day. It doesn't need to be in my everyday psyche, but it's a funny joke. But some of your stories and some of your uh, webcomics are more true. They're more universally part of, you know, what you think is actually funny or what you think is actually important. Or you have lots about love. You know, you have a lot of the webcomics are rock, paper, cynic. The underlying thing is that a lot of them are love stories, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think that... I I think you're you're definitely... um you're finding a, a more direct way to say what I'm what I'm trying to get to. Um, and I think like when I think about, say, like Justin's little big pieces, uh, you know, that, I think that's, um, that's an emotion that's a lot more powerful than just I hate chips or I, I hate people who open chips wrong. Um, that, that's an emotion where I, I feel like I'm a small person trying to fight back against these very big problems. You know, that's that's a deep cut uh, in, in people's emotional lives. And I think there's a reason that that resonates, where it's something that touches people on a deeper level. Um, and maybe it's kind of the different... It's the difference between um, the single on an album and the deep cut. You know, it's the deep cut that that's the reason that the, the enduring fans buy the album, versus the singles that are what get the the album or the songs in front of people.
1: It's like they almost have to travel through different mediums in order to reach different audiences. It's, um they're codependent on each other in order to survive. Yeah. Is it un? It, do you? Because so, you guys are more into this arena than I am. Do you think it's an unhealthy relationship?
2: These two states of your art or do you think again in moderation like sometimes it's uh sometimes it can be great like it's a great pick-me-up sometimes when it actually works and um but like peter says i I don't think you can dwell on it like it's great that that horse won but you can't sit around at the finish line giving high fives for the next week right because there's other races there's other races
0: gotta keep gambling yes
2: (laughs) yes do as peter says
1: just everyone keep gambling just double down, double down.
0: Yeah, but yeah, I think I think that, yeah, that that like comparison and expectation are both you know very big thieves of joy. Um, if you keep asking yourself why this piece of artwork didn't do as well as this other piece, or if you expected something going into publishing that piece of artwork, um, it's it's very likely that that's going to end up working against your internal reward system for how you value your art.
2: Have you ever have you ever gone back like? Um something that you thought for sure was gonna be a win. It didn't quite it fell a bit flat. Have you ever gone back and tried to retool it to to make it work better?
0: Way more times than I'm willing to admit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and how many times does
0: that work? Never. It it never I have gotten closer. I've gotten things where like the joke was right but I just didn't handle the art of the composition properly. Um and repackaging it gave it, you know, a, a much more solid release um but almost never there it's uh yeah like I, i i spend a lot of time repackaging uh jokes or ideas like because i work in four different web comics and i also do music so i can i can have one joke that works this way in a comic and then i reconstitute it this way for a song and then maybe a nugget of that appears in a short story so i spend a lot of time trying to like disguise the same idea you know with like fake glasses and mustaches and and seeing if i can pass it off as something different or new and see how people respond to it um, but generally speaking, I, th- I think there is something about that, the underlying personality of that idea or that joke um, that people recognize no matter how you dress it up. So for the most part, like th- that initial response I get is very honest to um, how it's going to be received no matter how I repackage it.
1: I think that's true of most people's creative like, body of work, right? Is you're just, you have certain themes that you are thinking about in your life. If you're trying to, you know, use work to, you know, better yourself, which I think is an important part of being an artist, uh, is that it should be self-reflective. So if you're returning to those things over and over, then you're going to see that theme appear over and over. over. I know all, you know, we don't have to play armchair psychologists with my work, but if you did, you could find some reoccurring themes over and over.
2: Oh, agent, darling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool?
0: So when you identify themes that you're coming back to, um, you know whether it's it's little big or it's um, uh, the way that you set up conflicts. Do you, do you lean into that and you're like you yeah, maybe this is the way that I tell stories and this is something that I want to to go deeper into or is that something that you try to avoid because it can it can you know lead to you doing the same thing?
1: Stagnate. Yeah, well it's like what you said about turning off the editor brain when you're composing. Um, whatever comes out, you have to let come out and kind of arrive in a pile. And then you have to curate that pile, and some things, you know, if they all come out on the same theme, you can Frankenstein it a little bit and say, okay, well, this part works and this part works and this part works, but that other stuff that seems to always come out of me when I write, I'm just going to leave on the table because it's not, it doesn't serve this particular story. Um, I don't know, it's a, it's
2: a hard balance to strike though because sometimes you figure it out later, like other you people didn't realize. Point out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like sometimes. Like if I'm, I'm drawing in the same style over and over again, my brain will get a little bored of it, and it kind of forces me to work a w- different way or a, a separate way. So I know that I'm not done with the little big stuff yet because I'm still having so much fun doing it. But eventually, I'm gonna get sick of it, and that's when I'll figure out what the next thing is. Yeah,
1: and I think it happens organically as long as you're, you know, keep going back to the mine shaft.
2: I'm also I'm quite aware. Um, in like graph design, we would talk about this all the time, where everybody in their company wants to change their logo because they stare at it every day. On every document, <laughs> they're looking at their logo, right? Yeah. So you want to change it within the first year. Like, I hate this logo. I want something different. But most people only see that once, twice a year. Not everybody has the same exposure to your work that, that you do. So keep in mind, yeah, not everybody. nobody's sick of this except for you probably. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's sick of our work except yeah. for us gentlemen. That's that's the thing.
1: Um you talked about your internal rewards versus your sort of external the gratification that can exist online or exist at a show. What do you do internally to maintain this like incredible output?
0: Um I mean scheduling is a big part of it. Like I what one thing that I found uh, has really helped with my I guess you'd call it creative sustainability is um Balancing creative discipline with creative forgiveness. Um, when I when I first started doing like comics and story writing and, and freelancing full time, um, I would have these days where like I would just wouldn't have the output that I wanted, um, or I'd I'd sink a bunch of hours into an idea that didn't pan out, um, and I'd be so angry at myself and feel so guilty about it uh, that that guilt would just lock me up for another twenty four hours. Um, and what I found is that creative discipline is great. It's so important. I, I don't ever want to um, pretend that it's not, but it's just as important to have creative forgiveness where if you flub a day or things don't, you're not outputting the way that you feel that you should, you're able to say, well, you know what? Tomorrow is a completely different day. What I did today has, has no impact on whether or not I'm a good artist or whether or not I can come up with a great idea tomorrow. Um, and giving yourself, I guess, the um, the emotional slack to, to let yourself fail uh, by doing bad creative work, by failing to produce any creative work, um, uh, and, and, and still get up the next day and say, you know what, that doesn't mean you're not going to do a great job today. So for me, like personally, my, my internal reward reward system has um, all been based around creative forgiveness. Um, cause I'm someone, I, I, I think I carry a lot of anxiety around. Um, it's not something that I show very publicly, but I, I, I worry a lot about a lot of different things about my creative work and how it's perceived. And if I'm working hard enough, um, uh, and I think part of that insecurity comes from the fact that I do such short form work that I feel like maybe I have to, I, I should be working harder or, or I, I should be pushing deeper into ideas. Um, so that's that's been huge for me is like learning how to, how to forgive myself when I do a bad job or when I'm not working the way that I should, because it just makes the next day so much easier to get into and so much more enjoyable. Because guilt, you know, if you're producing work out of guilt because you feel like you have to make something... Um, I think that's important. Like, you have to be at your desk, or you're not going to be working. But if if every day you come to your to your desk with guilt and anxiety, um, and those are your editors while you're working, um, you're going to have a much harder time being able to output the way that you want.
2: Yeah, absolutely true. That hit on a lot of points that we talk about, like a lot with other creative people. It's just like you got to keep going. You can't. It's not all about that one project or that one thing. And if you make it all about that one project, that one thing, you're not going to go very far but, but i find
1: this is an important part in here we often are talking about how we just have to give each other permission you just have to give permission yeah. this idea that you have to be able to forgive yourself when it doesn't go the way you originally thought or planned i think is um very insightful yeah. and i see you in a new guru
0: status Peter. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well if, if uh, that status has been earned through many many failures uh, <laughs> Many, many failures, um, yes, but most successes are, though. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I think that, you know, like it's, it's that mixture of determination, but like self-love and self-understanding, that's that's really important. Because if every if all of you is hard edges, if it's that kind of like set your jaw determination, um, then you're going to have an adversarial relationship with your work and with creativity. And I think for some people that does work. I think there are some people who, you know, theirs is the path of grit and and uh, muscling through. Um, but there's so many people that doesn't work for, and there's so many artists that I've seen who, um, get distracted by self-flagellating rather than, um, just moving on and letting themselves get onto the next thing. Cause if you are like really so upset that you didn't do good work today, then my feeling is that your best priority is making tomorrow better. And, and if you spend your entire time, you know, beating yourself up, you're, you're not, you're not going to be working. Um, so if your actual priority, if, if your honest priority is getting work done tomorrow, um, then give yourself a, um, you know, a, a pick-me-up speech and uh, hit the next day uh, as fresh as you can.
1: Do you have any advice or wisdom from up on the mountain um, about how you can recognize when that internal voice or that pick-me-up speech is procrastination versus actual intention?
0: I think right now, like my my current emotional cycle i'm erring on the side of of uh, enabling procrastination um (laughs) if if i'm being perfectly honest um so no i don't think i have advice for that um other than like uh i don't know i i do like i'm a very bad uh meditator i've never been able to get into yoga i I want to be someone who wants to do yoga but uh it's it's never worked out that way but micro meditation is something that i i'm good at and um you know when like your internet's being kind of wonky and you reset the modem and you reset the router and, and things get better? I, I kind of just do that mentally. Like I'll take like a a one minute meditation and I have a particular um, uh, like visualization technique that I use that's really, really good for just like resetting. And then, and then I can kind of step back into a productive space. Um, if you do it too many times or too often, it starts to lose effectiveness. But it's it's been like a little trick that's helped me quite a bit. And I, I use it at conventions when I'm feeling stressed or tired or overwhelmed. Um, I, I use it in a lot of different situations, and it's been really helpful.
1: Just being mindful of your own space and mental capacity and taking a break, even a small one.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's not even taking a break so much as it's like just doing maintenance. Yeah. Um, on, uh, and like a quick bit of maintenance on your on your mental space because like what I find is you know when you reach an anxiety point or um, you get you get locked up in some kind of emotional barrier with your work um, or you're just procrastinating and you're avoiding confronting your own emotions about your work. Um, just breaking the cycles of thought and, and feeling that you're like locked into in that moment um, and giving yourself you know enough room for re-entry into that mental space just it, it goes really far.
1: Hmm. I'm pausing now in contemplation rather than a good, uh, a good, my mic skills falter as I try to think about what you're saying. I have two things that I rely on in those stressful times. One of them is a genetic inherited power to have a 10-minute nap and go fully into REM sleep inside of 10 minutes and then come out. Not all heroes um, wear capes. What's that? Not all Not heroes, all heroes wear, capes. wear capes. Some of them take It's naps. so true. It's, some of them take naps, and uh, I inherited it from my dad, and I can just, no matter where I am or what I'm doing, I can sit down and fall asleep for a very short time, have a little dream, and then wake up and feel like 100% refreshed.
2: That's such BS. Yes, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's
1: so great. It's, uh, and my, my wife gets angry at me, too, sometimes for it as a power, because we have two small children, and when it gets to be too much, I'll, how I tap out is I'll say, I'm going to go to sleep for 10 minutes, and I go upstairs, and I sleep for 10 minutes, and then I come back, and I feel great. And my wife is quite jealous of this <laughs> ability, but it's good for our uh, it's good for our parenting levels. Um, but then at shows uh, or in like any like general stressful situation, I often will just take a long deep breath and try not to think about anything at all. Just one long deep breath, and as uh, Justin knows from a previous conversation, I have mutant sized lungs, and <laughs> yeah. so. Um, it helps a lot just to pause in everything you're doing once in a while and reflect on what it is. Breathe. Just breathe. As a person with a million projects, do you have you have some secret things brewing, I assume, which we won't name?
0: Yeah, I've got um uh, there, I think I think I can say that there's going to be a book of um, the shortest story uh, coming out in the fall um, with g Publications but um, the exact sort of release plans are still coming together on that um, but uh, it's looking like it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, we've been talking about uh, some ways to I guess doll up the book or make it make it a little bit more interesting and interactive um, but that's about all I can say about that for now so that's that's been um, something that I've been working on a lot in the background. Um, and I'm very excited to share with people once we kind of have a, a final battle plan for it. How about, uh, how about you guys? What's sort of your next big, your next big project? Well, uh, I've got a new
2: book brewing for, uh, probably release at the end of this year called, uh, Dragon Nanny. It's the next book, um, that Greg and I are going to work on together. Um, kind of following up, the uh, the series with Cassie and Tonk and Rust and Water Dragon Nanny is will be the third installment in the Silent Guardian series. So we've been uh, working on the storyboards and and talking about uh, it's all it's in the the beginning like fledgling stages where everything is exciting We're, and everything's and fresh new and, and possible. And yeah, yeah,
1: wonderful. Yeah. yeah, I love that part. But I'm a little jealous at the idea that you get to have that feeling like often in a day working on these short stories. Yeah,
0: but, yeah, it's it's. Um, The Shortest Story has definitely been the um, most, like, productive and happy creative space that I've hollowed out for myself. Um, It's the right combination of, like, low stakes, high stakes. Um, And, yeah, and everything is possible with every story I wait into. Um, I get that with prints, though. I think, like, while I'm working on a
2: book, like, that long project, I'll take a break and and spend a day and make a new new print. And that's kind of my, yeah, that same, like, quick fix <laughs> yeah when i have yeah great
0: i don't think i've ever seen you greg do anything low stakes um, <laughs> what do you like mean by that it's like it's like you go big and you go deep and there's there's so many there's so many layers and so much thought um yeah make a like, sticker or a button greg come I just on yeah. bet on every horse in the
1: race peter just every horse i buy a ticket for <laughs> Is that how horse racing works? Do you buy a ticket? I don't really I'm know. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: don't actually gamble. Um, yes, we'll do that this summer. We'll go to the horse races.
1: I just feel that We're because good. I love the work that I do, that I shouldn't be shy or ashamed to share that enthusiasm when I'm in public with people who are at a show looking for new work. So it may seem on the outside like, hey, everything's big and huge and great and whatever, but you know, when we come back to the studio it's just it's toil. You just have to make it, but you kind of build up some uh, potential energy to the point where you can release it somewhere.
0: Yeah. One thing that um, and I, I know that you guys have talked about uh, like convention sales and, and the way that you approach the, running the table before. Um, but I was, I was talking with my wife last night about uh, Greg, your, your sales technique and how it's both the most like forward but totally non-aggressive sales technique I've ever seen. Um, like it's it, there's no there's no pressure tactics there's no no one buying anything they don't want to buy but at the same time like uh you you 100% set the tone for like we're going to have a really enthusiastic conversation about this thing that I'm really excited about <laughs> that thing happens I mean? to be something that you can put money into for those you, of I, you I, I, who,
2: who haven't seen Greg at convention He hides behind his table, pops up, throws glitter in your face, and then puts a book in your hand before you know what's going on. (laughs) It's mostly that. No, what it is is that (laughs) I see what it
1: is now that I have children. The same way my kids bring their crayon drawings to me, like, dad, dad, look at this. That's how I am at shows with other people, right? They come up and they're like, hey, what's this guy doing? I'm like, hey, I made this for you, (laughs) right? Do you want to put it on the
0: fridge? I think 100% you should do a macaroni graphic novel. Oh my God. <laughs> how, how would I ship it?
1: Oh, the rats would be at the studio like, <laughs> constantly. Oh my God. One of the things I'm working on now, which is different for me, which is the departures, I'm working on it's actually announces today in actual time, <laughs> in studio time. Um, but Exciting. this will be posted after the announcement, so it's safe to talk about it. I am illustrating a 120 page graphic novel. Um, uh, written by Kai Kobayashi for Baby Metal, which is the magical origin of this Japanese new metal band. And it has been such a crazy experience to work on this project because it's very, it's way in my wheelhouse. It's these, you know, magical women fighting evil. It's monsters. It's exciting. I've just been experimenting with all these different uh, uh, fight choreographies and just having a blast. But... It's for a market that I know nothing about. Yeah, and talk I actually, about a
2: new demographic. I
1: actually can't yeah. speak the language of the majority of the fans. And so only my enthusiasm will be on display when we are promoting it in Japan because I won't be understood.
2: And handfuls of glitter.
1: And handfuls of gl- So that glitter yeah. trick I may have to actually resort to.
0: Yeah. Wow, well, congratulations. That, I'm, I'm really curious to hear how that goes.
1: Uh, I'm curious to see, I mean... Like for you guys, you will regularly put your work in the front of, you know, tens of thousands of eyes. This'll be one of the first times where I have a pr- some print material at that scale and um I'll let you know what that feedback feels like in a future episode. Do we
2: have a is there a firm release time? Um there is Probably can't talk about it just yeah, yet. Yeah, I'm yeah, not... Yeah, just that th- you're working on
1: it. Yeah, we're working yeah. on it. What it is is that they have a firm release date, and yeah. I am actually ahead of schedule in production. Ooh, good for you. Um, but there is... Um, uh, see, I've also, in the first time where I'm not sure, because I'm not in control of everything, what the safe um, things to say about certain facts are. Because, like, if, if I miss... Um, If I misrepresent the date of a release of my own graphic novel that I'm, you know, producing myself, only I am affected. But if I misrepresent this date, which I don't have on hand right now, then, uh, you know, hundreds of people potentially are affected by me misrepresenting this. So I don't want to do that. But um, I can say this for most of your questions about baby metal. Only the fox god knows.
0: I've got a message for you. You're not not
1: going to like it. Gentlemen, this has been Super Pulp Science, where we've talked about how story gets made. Um, our special guest, Peter Tchaikowski, can be found at many places online. Why don't you tell us about them?
0: Yeah, um, you can find uh, most of my projects through rockpapersynic.com, um, but the one we talked about most today was uh, shorteststory.com. Um, and I'm at rockpapersynic on most social media.
1: No matter the length of your story be it short or long i encourage you to join the fight and make comics